Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. On April 8th, 1630, a fleet of four ships pushed back from Yarmouth, a port town on a small island in the English Channel just off England's southern coast. The four ships were filled with approximately 700 passengers, Puritans, Protestant Christians leaving England to establish what they considered to be a more pure form of Protestant Christianity across the Atlantic in what they called the New World. One of the ships, the Arabella, carried the group's fearless leader, John Winthrop, He'd been elected governor of the new colony they were setting out to establish, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And just before they set sail from England, Governor Winthrop preached a sermon to the people who were joining him on this promising but perilous journey. It was a message about what God was calling them to do in this new world, the kind of people they were called to be. And the sermon has become famous for its central proclamation We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people will be upon us. But like so many famous quotes, history has misattributed this one for the most part to John Winthrop. Many have forgotten to whom these words originally belonged. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill that can't be hidden. Now, before we try to understand what these verses mean for us today as Christians, first, a few important textual notes on Matthew 5. The you in these verses, as in you are the light of the world, is a second person plural. In other words, a corporate, a communal you, as my wife would say, a y'all. Okay, so who is that collective you referring to? To get a handle on that question, we need to be clued into the immediate context of these verses within Matthew's gospel. Our verses this morning are part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of extended teaching that Jesus offers to a crowd that's followed him to a mountainside that he fashions into a pulpit. And Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek and the merciful, the pure in heart and the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then in verse 12, the verse that immediately precedes our reading this morning, Jesus says, Blessed are you, blessed are y'all, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, even though we're used to reading these short excerpts of Scripture on Sunday morning, there's no hard break between verse 12 and 13 in our Bibles. 
The Sermon on the Mount is a single unified teaching. And so to connect the Beatitudes, which end in verse 12 with Jesus' subsequent teaching on salt and light that begin in 13, I think Jesus is saying when you, when you together start to get pushback on my account, when people start to challenge you because you're following my teachings to humble yourselves and serve others, to make peace and to work for justice for the oppressed, then you will be, then you will be the light of the world. A second note on this text, and gird your egos here, please. Even when we do these righteous things, we're not actually the light of the world. Well, we are, but we aren't. John, 1 John 1, 5. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So let's be clear. God is the light. God is the source of the light. God is the light itself. We are a container of God's light, a bearer of God's light. One last note, Jesus is explicit in his teaching that this light of God that shines within us is meant to be seen. We do not hide the light that's in it. We do not keep it for ourselves. Jesus says, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. And so we allow this light to shine in us, not for our own glory and honor, but so that others may come to see the source of the light, so that they might walk in the light, so that together we might be a city on top of a hill, a city with light that cannot be hidden. Jesus said it first. John Winthrop got most of the credit. But the city on the hill was really made famous by 20th century American presidents. A researcher who studied the usage of the phrase city on a hill in American culture over the last four centuries found that the phrase basically disappeared between 1630 and the 1950s. Then beginning with John F. Kennedy and perhaps most famously with Ronald Reagan, American presidents began to evoke this image of a city on the hill as a symbol of American exceptionalism. Democrats and Republicans alike used it to lift up America as a shining example, a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. This past week, of course, we celebrated the most patriotic day of the year in our country. And as I reflected on the issues that our church is working on in our community, working with greater Cleveland congregations to curb the practice of our children being sent to adult prisons, working in an interfaith coalition to address the rise of anti-Semitism and racism and white supremacy, working with Lee Road Baptist Church to care for our youth and prevent gun violence and murder in our streets. As I consider all the work that is before us here in Cleveland, I can say without hesitation that America is not a city on a hill. We do not collectively bear the light of God's love and justice for the rest of the world to see. 
But then again, American exceptionalism was not what John Winthrop intended to proclaim in his 1630 sermon above the, uh, aboard the Arabella. And it's certainly not what Jesus meant preaching from the side of a mountain in Galilee many centuries earlier. The city on a hill imagery has been co-opted by American politicians for their own ends, and I want it back. We, the church, we, God's people, we can still be the light of God in the world. Amen? We can be a city on a hill in our community. We can be a church that cannot be hidden. The biblical scholar M. Eugene Boring wrote that with these three metaphors of salt, light, and city, Jesus strikes the death blow to all religion that is purely personal and private. Just as the sermon is heard not only by the disciples but also by the crowds, so also the church is not an esoteric community of initiates. The community that lives by the power of unostentatious prayer in the inner room is not an introverted secret society shielding itself from the world, but is a city set on a hill whose authentic life cannot be concealed. We, the church, cannot hide our light. We cannot recede into the shadows when there are issues in our community that need light shined upon them. And next month, we face such an issue in Ohio. Issue one, it's called, in fact. You probably have heard about it, know all about it, but just in case this is the first you're hearing about it, here's what's happening. On August 8th, there will be a special election in Ohio for all voters, and we will be asked uh, to vote yes or no to issue one, a proposed change to our state's constitution put forward by the state legislature. A yes vote would make it more difficult for voters to change the constitution, requiring a 60% supermajority of voters to approve any future change to our constitution while a no vote would leave the Constitution as it is, requiring a simple majority of voters, 50% plus one, to approve future amendments. Greater Cleveland Congregations, or GCC, of which Fairmount is a member, has voted to oppose Issue 1 because they believe it would take away the power of the people to make moral decisions for ourselves and give that power into the hands of a few elected officials. And GCC invited me to speak this coming week along with my colleagues, Rabbi Josh Caruso of Anche Hesed Fairmount Temple and Reverend Dr. Lisa Goods of Shiloh Baptist Church this Tuesday at a press conference at the Board of Elections encouraging people to vote no on issue one. And after discussing it with our session earlier this week, I've accepted that invitation and I invite you to join me there on Tuesday morning at 8.30 if you'd like. If you'd like to talk more about Issue 1 today, I'm going to be in room 114 after worship near the chapel for a conversation about it. However you feel about Issue 1, whether you support it or you oppose it, please, please vote. And vote early if you can. Tomorrow is the deadline for voter registration and absentee ballot, and in-person early voting starts on Tuesday. 
Now, I imagine that some of you are feeling a little uncomfortable right now, maybe even a little angry at me, wondering why I'm preaching politics from the pulpit. So many of us have been told that the church should stay out of politics. But I say that's neither what our gospel commands nor our spiritual tradition teaches. We are instructed to be political, but not partisan. As we just read, Jesus commands us to be the light of the world, serving our neighbors and working for justice regardless of the consequences, and that kind of work can get political. And when it comes to our spiritual tradition as Presbyterians, as Calvinists in the Reformed tradition, we are and always have been a very civically-minded people of faith. Presbyterians are encouraged to be engaged in our civil government. The last two great ends of the church laid out in the Book of Order are the promotion of social, social righteousness and the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. And our spiritual ancestors, like John Calvin and John Knox, modeled these acts of faith in many ways. For instance, petitioning their government to create and fund public schools so that all children could get an education regardless of their ability to pay. And today our denomination has an office of public witness in Washington, D.C. to lobby on legislative issues that align with the gospel. Second, we Presbyterians are a law-abiding people. We are decent and in order, after all. And yet we're called to place our obedience to God above our obedience to any human authority. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote, But in that obedience to which we have shown to be the due authority to rulers, we are always to make this exception. Indeed, to observe it as primary, that such obedience to any ruler is never to lead us away from obedience to God, to whose will the desires of all ought to yield. Moreover, the Belhar Confession, in our Book of Confessions, states that the church as a possession of God must stand where the Lord stands, namely against injustice and with the wronged. That in following the church, in the following Christ, the church must witness against all the powerful and privileged who selfishly seek their own interests and thus control and harm others. We believe that in obedience to Jesus Christ, its only head, the church is called to confess and to do all these things, even though the authorities and human laws might forbid them and punishment and suffering be the consequence. Finally, we Presbyterians are a people steeped in democracy. John Calvin, who lived under a monarchy, very carefully advocated for greater democracy in governance in his time, saying that men's fault or failing causes it to be safer and more bearable for a number of people to exercise government rather than a single ruler or small group of rulers. And this ideal of democratic governance is deeply embedded in our Presbyterian church. We have a polity of elected leaders with term limits, and every single member of our congregation has the right to vote on critical issues. 
We Presbyterians should be proud of our heritage in many ways, proud of our commitment to advocating for justice with the least of these, proud of our tradition of creating and upholding democracy in our churches and our communities. It's a legacy that has been carried on for more than a hundred years here at this corner of Fairmount, Coventry, and Scarborough, a corner that, according to Google Maps, sits exactly 914 feet above sea level. Now, that may not seem like much of a hill, but for me, at least, it's high enough for our light to be seen for miles and miles. This I deliver to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.